Thanks for checking out this message from Coastal Community Church. We hope it's helpful and encouraging. As Pastor Scott just shared with you, I am indeed Chris Jones and I am our church's outreach pastor. And I'm just glad that we have this opportunity to be together today. And as always, to everybody who's out there watching online, we're just so glad that you are with us. And as always, we're gonna invite you to engage with us in, out, in the chat throughout the service today. In fact, if you haven't already done so, go ahead and drop a comment and say hello and let us know where you are watching from. So we're in this series, Summer Reading, and it's kind of like our recent sermon series at the movies. It is indeed a tradition and a favorite here at our church. And then kind of as a disclaimer or a reminder, if you will, to somebody who might be a new, uh, perhaps a first or second time guest, we just want you to know we're not going to be preaching from these books themselves. We're just using them as a spiritual hook or maybe even a conversation starter, if you will, so that we can use God's word to kind of dive a little bit deeper into the truth found in his word. And the books that we've been working through through this series were chosen by the church's staff as being both newer and notable and just simply books that we think are worth checking out. So with all that being said, just by a quick show of hands, has anybody here read the book Don't Hold Back by David Platt? So I see a couple of hands here. That's great. And if you're watching online, we'd love for you to let us know in the chat if you've read it or if you plan on checking it out. And then maybe we're going to ask you because you're online today to take a step further and share in the chat your favorite book because your favorite might become someone else's favorite too. To those who might be unfamiliar, uh, the, the book Don't Hold Back is the most recent book by pastor and New York Times bestselling author David Platt. Uh, pastor David is the lead pastor of McLean Bible Church in Washington, D.C., and he's also the founder of an organization called Radical.net. It's an organization whose purpose is to help encourage and equip Christians to simply be on mission for God. Now, Pastor David is also the author of multiple books, including New York Times bestseller Radical, as well as the books Follow Me, Countercultural, Counterculture, I should say, and Something Needs to Change. Now, in the book, Don't Hold Back, with its subtitle, Leaving Behind the American Gospel to Follow Jesus, Pastor David argues that we, the American church, have gotten really good at following a really bad gospel. A gospel that worships American ideas over biblical truth. And if you follow P Pastor David in his ministry to any degree, you'll find a lot of his teachings and his writings and his passions centered around the idea of both local and global evangelism. And a reoccurring theme that you'll see in his book is this idea of getting the gospel to the folks in the world who haven't heard it. To work to alleviate what amounts to unimaginable uh, suffering both here at home and abroad. And he hopes that through his writing and through his passions to ignite churches and Christians to be awakened and then thereby act upon the realities of the world in which we find ourselves living in. In fact, Pastor David states this, it's time for disillusioned, discouraged, and divided Christians and the next generation to follow Jesus into a different future. He goes on to say that we as a church corporately, we have a choice. That first choice is, an American gospel or the biblical gospel? Worldly division or otherworldly unity? Compromise with the idols that we find here in our country or an absolute commitment to God's call on all of our lives? 
David argues in this book, the church in America is indeed faced with a very critical choice. Now, allow me a question for you, and I'll ask several questions throughout our time together, because I believe that questions are things that will cause us to stop where we are and to evaluate and think. Now, when you hear the words, the American gospel, what comes to your mind immediately? What's the first descriptive word that comes to your mind? If you happen to be worshiping in person today, take a moment and jot the word down on your outline. The American gospel is. Perhaps if you're online today, you'd leave the very first word that comes to your mind in the chat. You see, there are no right or wrong answers here. There's not gonna be any judgment here, no calling out or anything like that. But in order to understand where the Lord is leading us today, we need to see exactly where we are. After all, you cannot get to where you are going until you understand where you've been. Listen to what Pastor David had to say in the book, Don't Hold Back. He writes, far too long, we have traded in the biblical gospel that exalts Jesus above everything in this world for an American gospel that prostitutes Jesus for the sake of comfort, power, politics, and prosperity in our country. Now, that's absolutely sobering, right? But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say the evidence is all around us. Instead of being eager to unite around the glory of Jesus, Christians are quick to divide over the idolatry of both personal and political convictions. Instead of sharing God's word like it's water for thirsty friends in a spiritual desert, we're wielding it like it's a weapon against our enemies in an all-out culture war. Again, is David on to something here? As a whole, do we find ourselves as a nation more focused on political ideologies? Assuming that if you don't associate with this political party over the other, you somehow, one, hate God, and if you associate with the other, you hate people? Are we quick to express and insist on our own personal convictions over every possible social issue we're facing our, that's facing our country? And are we as a nation, are we a nation of people who are taking our limited understanding of who God is as he's revealed himself to us in his word and have actually weaponized it against people who simply think and look differently than we do? Do we value comfort and prosperity over the millions of people who have become disillusioned and even at times hurt by the church? While multitudes of people see the table in which we've laid out as a church and want to get away from us as far as possible? Do we value loving and serving others? Or do we find ourselves so caught up in a tumultuous cultural environment that it makes us quick to accuse, to belittle, to cancel, and to distrust one another? Now friends, I'm not here to suggest one answer over the other because I'll just trust the Spirit of God and His Holy Spirit to do that for us today. But what I'm hoping to accomplish, as I stated a couple of moments ago, is to simply get us to pause for the moment in time that we are here and then get us to think. To simply evaluate as to whether we as individuals or as a church corporately are guilty of living underneath a counterfeit American gospel. And more important than that, to consider the biblical gospel in light of how you and I should live so that ultimately others come to know Jesus and that God would ultimately receive the glory in all of our lives. Now let's face it, if you've read the book or if you've checked it out, you'll see that Pastor David is literally all over the place. 
In this one little book of a couple hundred pages, he talks about materialism and the love of self, alluding to it at times through this prosperity, name it and claim it philosophy that's become so prevalent in the American church. He talks about racism and social injustices and even segregation that's still occurring in the American church. He admonishes the church over and over again for losing its focus in both the going and the making of disciples across the whole globe. And I have to admit, in considering the direction, in planning this message that the Lord would have us to go as a church today, I wrestled and wrestled with what he would have me to share with you. Because if you've read this book, you would discover very quickly that you could go in a number of different directions uh, in which to bring a message. And I have to admit to you, being as transparent and as honest as I can, is this, I didn't like the answer that he gave me at first. Because the answer that he gave me, it seemed so simple. Things that I believe that you and I, we already understood and were doing as a church. So instead of being obedient to what he had called me to preach today, I fought it hoping somehow in this wrestling that he would give me some deeper, meaningful message for you. I fought it and fought it until finally at some point, I don't exactly remember when it came, where I could sense the Holy Spirit speaking to me saying, Chris, what I'm calling you to say to my people isn't as simple as you would like for you to believe. Because the reality is you get none of the things you are being called to share right. To which you might imagine I said, Ouch. So let's assume then, because assume is a, it's a benign word, that there is this tendency for all of us as a church to live this counterfeit American gospel. And in doing so, answer the question, how then should we live as Christians under the biblical gospel? What does God's word say about how you and I should live? In a world that's incredibly, as we'd like to, we will, if we were able to ask, we would all admit, is incredibly convoluted, troubled, and even noisy. What should we be doing then as a church and even as individual Christians? And how do we take what humanity has made incredibly complicated and simply make it easy again? Well, I'm going to share with you three simple things that for centuries and centuries, men and women of the faith have yet to fully get right. Which leads me to the first point there on your outline. And that is to love God. Love God. Now, when we think about love, we need to come to an understanding right on the front end of this. And that is one, love isn't about a feeling. Because the reality is feelings come and go. And love as a feeling is fickle and very very subject to its own environment. And two, our mindsets need to shift to this idea of love not being an emotion or necessarily a state of being, but a word of action. You see, love is simply not love biblically without action, without inertia, without movement. In its most basic sense, love requires action. Listen to Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 20. It says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he, this is Jesus, said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, of course, we need a little bit of context just to kind of set things up for us today. 
If you were to read this very same account that we just read in Luke chapter, chapter 10 in the Gospel of Matthew, you would find that right here at this passage, Jesus has just made his entry into Jerusalem. And some translations describe Matthew chapter 21 as Jesus' triumphal entry. This is where Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey and the people are spreading out their cloaks along the road as he comes in. In fact, in Matthew 21 and 9, it says the crowds are shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as he enters into Jerusalem, he makes his way into the temple where he begins teaching. And in this teaching, he draws the ire of both the Pharisee and the Sadducee. And as a reminder, those are the two leading religious leaders of the temple. And these religious leaders are working feverishly to try to trip Jesus up, to get him to say something that he shouldn't say in hopes that they would be able to bring charges against him. But what I want you to see here as we dig into the word here early on is that the schemes of men to simply bring Jesus down ultimately became the defining statement of our Christian faith. The first being simply to love God. So how do we love God? Fortunately for us, the Bible tells us exactly how we should do so. Matthew chapter six, verse 24 says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The idea here is pretty straightforward. We cannot share a love for God with a love for stuff. Now, let me just go ahead and lay a disclaimer out and stating up front that having nice things are not bad in themselves. This idea of setting goals and achieving those goals for yourselves is, is honorable. Again, stuff and money and possessions in themselves are not necessarily evil. But when they take precedent over the call on your life to honor and serve the God who saved you is where we find the issue. You see, it's very easy to forget that everything that we have the house, the cars, the furnishings, the vacations are all gifts from the Lord. Our jobs, our careers, the money in the bank, whether you have a lot or even if you have a little, all come from the hand of God as a blessing from him. And when we have these things, there is this danger of somehow forgetting about the source of all we have and to think that we are somehow self-reliant. And it's this spirit of self-reliance that can unknowingly become the ultimate object of our adoration and our worship. And Jesus is reminding us here in this passage that we don't have the capacity, you and I, to love both. That we, in love with the other, will ultimately hate the other. Which generates a question today. And that being, who or what is the object of our love? Is it Jesus or is it something else? Listen to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. It says, do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, loving God goes beyond being mindful of the things that we have. And in fact, it even goes beyond considering what it is that we do. But it also involves what we allow our eyes to see and those things that we choose to put our hands to. Now it goes without saying 
There are a million different things that we can expose ourselves to that not only grieve the spirit of God, but are also injurious to ourselves as well, right? And to love God, we have to become mindful of those things and resolve that we're gonna do everything that we can to refrain from them simply because our love for God and what he has already done for us is greater than the fleeting things that this, this dying world can provide. Loving God means acknowledging that the things and the fleeting passions of this world is indeed passing away. And that we, you and I, we want to at some point in time stand at the gateway of eternity, holding the things that truly matter to Jesus. Because the reality is everything else will be left behind. Again, we have to ask ourselves, who or what is the object of our worship? Is it Jesus or is it something else? So again, if we're going to explore this problem of American gospel, we have to first ask the question, how should we live as Christians under the biblical gospel? And in answering that question, we have to understand that we should first love God. And then the second is, we gotta love people. Again, seemingly so basic and so simple. However, comma, arguably the most elusive, right? You see, there is this idea that, is, that being self-sufficient is highly valued here in the United States. Individualism is a hallmark of American culture. There exists this notion that you gotta fight and claw if you want to get anything out of this life. We live in a culture that highly values competition. Wait until we got maroon and black and orange in just a couple of weeks. We talk about this climbing of this proverbial corporate ladder even at times in our culture, condoning the stepping on and over of others, even if it includes our spouses and our children. Achievement is listed as being paramount. And if people are without, the assumption that's made in our culture is that they are without because they don't want it bad enough or because they just aren't working hard enough. And the American gospel is a mentality that simply asserts they don't have, but it's not my problem. I want to reread again Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 28, because it is literally the anchor uh, passage for this message today. In reading again, it says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? <coughs> Excuse me. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Again, note there, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is saying of everything that is important. And we know that there are a million and one different things that we can argue are the most important of things. But Jesus is saying the most important amongst them all is simply loving him and then loving his people. We are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. But even that generates a question, right? It generates the question, who exactly then is my neighbor? It's a legitimate and reasonable question, right? It's also a question the religious expert had for Jesus as well. Let's continue reading in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 29. It says, but he, this is the religious leader of the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. 
And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed mercy. Jesus' response to him was said, you go and do likewise. Again, the question is, who is my neighbor? Jesus shares a parable of this man who's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. The man is attacked, he's robbed, he's beaten, he's left on side the road for dead. And along comes the priest and then a Levite who both see the state of this man and they not only refuse to help the man, but they ignore him by crossing to the other side of the road. Now we can speculate here that these men, being religious, absolutely understood the law. We could speculate that they were likely busy. Maybe at the time they just had a lot going on. Perhaps seeing this man here on the side of the road being left for dead presented a problem. Because if you understood the law, as priestly men, the law forbade them touching a potential corpse. Why? Because it's left them ceremonially unclean and thereby preventing them from doing the work of ministry. But Jesus goes on to talk about the Samaritan, who, mind you, is a social outcast in Israelite society. He's likely looked down upon by both the priest and the Levite, did something far better than just knowing. He went about doing in other words, the lawyer challenging Jesus, the priest and the Levite, likely all understood the law. But the Samaritan law chose not only to understand the law, but to live out the law by indeed doing it. And the fact is Jesus' call for our lives, as indicated in this passage, is for you and I to thereby go and likewise be the neighbor, especially to those who are foreign to us, those who look, think, and act differently than we do. We are all called to love others by demonstrating mercy unto them. 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 through 21 says, When we love, because he, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Again, Coastal, if we want to move away from this idea of an American gospel, to cast aside this idea of just living for ourselves, this notion of just making money and having possessions and living for ourselves as our own personal counterfeit great commandment, then we must first love God, and then equally so and equally as important, we must also love people. We are called to love God and to love those who don't deserve mercy. We are called to love God and love those who make mistakes and indeed struggle. We are called to love God and to even love those who have done us wrongly. Why? Simply because you and I, we are no different. And likewise, we do not deserve mercy. Because if you and I were to pause in this moment in the message and were to think about it for a little bit of a moment of time, we would all acknowledge very quickly that we all make mistakes. We likewise struggle and do wrong every single day. Yet even in all that, Jesus still loves us and he chooses in all that to forgive us. And he pours out his mercy on us day after day after day. And the response for us is to simply go and do the same. Again, 
What gospel are we choosing to live by? An American gospel or a biblical gospel? Are we living in a way that demonstrates an adoration of God and his son Jesus? Are we living under a gospel that exudes mercy, grace, love for all people? Again, we are called to love God. We are called to love people. And finally, to share the gospel. Now, I can only imagine that some watching online or maybe some here in person are thinking, I'm not sure that I'm either called or equipped to be sharing the gospel. You might be quick to assert, people don't want to hear about Jesus. An even more controversial idea is the one where I hear from time to time where people assert, my work environment is so hostile to the gospel that one, I'll get fired instantly, or two, I'll get laughed at or heckled off the job site. Others will lament over the idea of sharing the gospel out of fear that they'll be challenged or simply ask a a question they simply can't answer. Or perhaps there'll be some who will fear they don't know the gospel well enough or will stumble over their words or get tongue-tied or somehow even leave something out. But here's the thing. Even if all those things that I mentioned were to be true, we still have to understand that we are both called to share the gospel. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2 says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. A more familiar passage of scripture in Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Just a couple of weeks ago, a group of 25 people from our church traveled to Peru for a week-long missions trip. And I'll just say very briefly that it was an incredible opportunity a trip of a lifetime, if you will, a life-changing week with most in that core group already prayerful and hopeful that we'll have the opportunity to go again. And a very common experience for this entire team was the opportunity for us to share our personal stories and to share the gospel with the people of Peru. And on one of those occasions, we traveled to the headquarters of Peru's National Police. Now, just hearing that is intimidating enough, right? But anyway, our group descends down this long hallway, down some steps into this poorly lit, hot, stuffy basement. And there sat about 25 or 30 uniformed national policemen and women. And they're sitting upright, their head and eyes are to the front. There's no facial expressions, no eye movement. In fact, I'm fairly certain from the time we got there to the time we leave, not a single one of those police officers blinked one time. Now, when Pastor Scott told me, who I will just go ahead and say up front, did a great job of leading our team in Peru, shared early on in the trip that this would be where I would share my story in the gospel. And in his words, he said, it's going to be intense. (laughs) Let me just go ahead and tell you, folks, that is the understatement of the decade. So when the time came, I shared my story and the gospel with the national police. And I have to admit, when I stepped away, After several minutes of speaking, the doubts crept in. Things like, these officers clearly have more important things to do today, like fighting crime and protecting the people of Peru, for one. I thought as emotionless as they were, clearly my story did not resonate with him. Perhaps thinking that the cultural gap was too far and too wide for my story to resonate with them. I thought to myself, Chris, you should have said this. Or you left this part out. In fact, 
I held my head down as Mike, our missionary host in Peru, made the invitation to, for these police men and women to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And I remember praying to myself in the moment for the Lord to help these men and women in spite of me. And at some point I mustered up the courage and leaned over to Scott and I whispered, did anybody raise their hand? To which he looked me in the eye and he said, they all stood up to receive Jesus. The point of the story is simply this. It's not about us. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 7 says, neither he who plants nor neither he who waters is anything, but only God provides the growth. Friends, we are to share the gospel and the passages aren't just for pastors and church leaders. It's for everyone. No one is exempt. We are all called. It's for everyone. We are all called to do so with the understanding that you and I, we don't do the saving. Our job is to share and our Lord's job is to handle the call on his people's lives. So the fear of what others think, the arguments of not being called or equipped, and the worry of being questioned, challenged, laughed at, or heckled are simply not our worries. Because those of us who have received the mercy and grace of Jesus have only one concern, and that is to be about the sowing and to be about the watering. Sowing and watering with every opportunity, distrusting that Jesus will do in others what he has already done in all of us. And even when we think our personal story, whatever it is, is not relevant, when we compare that to our neighbors or wish that we had said something different or even if we are outright, outrightly rejected in the moment, we are still to be about the going. Going and making disciples, preaching the word, sowing and watering the seeds of eternal life. But then in that, trust Jesus that he will do the rest. Coastal wrapping this up today. It's important we have to remember that life is full of choices. And for us today as a church, we're faced with a choice. As a people and as a church, we can choose what Pastor David describes in American gospel, where we can choose to pursue material possessions. We can pursue careers and money. We can choose to take one side or the other over the political divide and then focus all of our time and energy to defending one over the other. We can choose our own personal convictions, whatever they might be, and then weaponize God's word to combat those who are just simply different than we are. Or we can choose to live under the biblical gospel, which calls us to simply love God, love people, and share the gospel. Friends, if we say we love God and also acknowledge everything that he has done for us, then what matters to him should ultimately matter to us. If people, all people created in his image are loved by God, and matter most to him, then loving people should be what matters most to all of us. And if we truly love God and love his people, then we should insist on sharing the hope of Jesus Christ and his ultimate gift of eternal life. Because everything about the American gospel is passing away. But the biblical gospel will last forever. Again, love God, love people, Share the gospel. And for Jesus' sake and for his glory, don't ever, ever hold back. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to be here, Lord, and just to, just to see how good you are, how awesome you are. Thank you, Lord, for eternal life. 
Thank you, Lord, for the calling on our life to love God, to love people, and to share your gospel. Strengthen us, Lord, to do just that. Help us, Lord, to turn from our own way, to seek your way. And Father, we pray for those today who simply may not know you, Lord, who have not accepted, Lord, your gift of eternal life. We just pray that today would be the day that, Lord, you came to this earth and lived a sinless life and went to the cross, Lord, for the sins of this entire world. And being placed in the tomb, you rose on the third day so that, so that all of us, Lord, might have eternal life. And so, Father, we thank you for that. And Lord, we pray that anyone who prays that prayer, Lord, that your spirit would enter into them and a work would begin that would begin on the inside and out. Father, thank you for this church. May you receive the honor and glory through everything we do in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. From Pastor Chris and the family at Coastal Community Church, have a blessed day.